Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome to Soul to Soul, right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman. It's great to be with you here this wonderful afternoon. And how did you like that music? It certainly got us in the Adar mode of singing, dancing, tapping, clapping. This is really great because the happiest and most exuberant holiday of the year is near. In fact, Monday evening, we are going to be celebrating Purim, the most joyous Jewish festival which commemorates the rescue of our people, the Jewish people from genocide, not for the first time, nor for the last time. And as we all know, the background of the Purim storage we discussed more last week, how the Persian Empire, the 4th century BCE, was vast and Jews were spread across the globe under the Persian Empire's reign. And when King Ahasuerus had his wife, Queen Vashti, who, by the way, you see a little bit of his foolishness there because he has her executed for failing to follow his orders by the advice of his good friend Haman. And then, later on, he has his good friend Haman executed by the advice of his next wife. So, quite a interesting fellow there. A little bit vacillates and moves around from depending on the day. And when we know that after executing Vashti, he arranges this nationwide beauty contest. He missed his wife. He needs a new queen. And of all the maidens that Shushan had, a Jewish girl named Esther won and became the new queen. And she ultimately used her influence to save her entire nation from annihilation. What I thought today would be really interesting to explore is some leadership lessons that we can learn from Esther, the hero who seized her divine moment and how, in essence, each of us can do the same because we have so many opportunities in life where we can make a difference, where we can be the heroine. In fact, Esther is the superstar of the whole Megillah. She saves her people from destruction and she's admired as one of the greatest Jewish heroines, an enduring model of wisdom, of leadership, of courage and It is Megillah's Esther that we read in art and literature across history and cultures. Queen Esther is, it's not only the book. I mean, she's obviously very well known for her beauty, her charm, her grace, how she manages to convince the king not to annihilate the Jewish people. But what often gets lost in translation from the biblical book of Esther, the Megillah that we're going to read on Monday evening and Tuesday, is her quality as a leader. Her perceptive intelligence, her astute insight into human behavior, and her unusual combination of pragmatism and idealism that all combined to make her one of the greatest leaders who we have in Jewish history. And while there are many men who are known for their important roles they played, in fact, Mordechai, he occupied a very key role in the Purim story. It is Esther, and so many times throughout history, and that's why we read the book, Megillat Esther, it's describing what she did. And if we can take a look at what perhaps oftentimes is an overlooked detail in the Purim story, hopefully we can gain a new and a greater appreciation of this hero, of Esther, and what she did, 
and how she made the difference in in everything in the story. So let's take a moment. Let's let's actually analyze the story a little bit. Why it's called Megillah Esther? If Mordechai was, so to say, the leader, then we know that when tragedy struck, he carefully analyzed all the developments, and he realized that it was none but Esther who is the person who was in the right position by divine providence to be the one to save the Jews. And he knew that he had two tasks. First, to inform Esther of the events that transpired, which we're going to read in the Megillah, how Esther, how Mordechai sends the message to Esther to let her know about what is going on. And secondly, to make Esther realize that she, and it's she alone, only her, who had that God-given opportunity to save her people. But once he succeeded in doing this, suddenly the roles reversed. And at that point, Esther began a campaign of such inspired political brilliance that it would make quite a complex spy novel or movie. Let's let's analyze the story from behind the scenes, the multi-layered history of Esther's heroic effort to save her people from extermination. Now, a short time after Esther's drafted into the Persian king's beauty contest, she won, she's married to the king. Haman, who was the powerful prime minister and very hateful anti-Semite of the Jews, he concocts a plan, a plot, a conspiracy to wipe out, to exterminate all the Jewish people of Persia. And at once, in one day, and ironically, I mean, we look at the whole story, the very beginning, the first chapter in the Megillah, we see where's this all coming from? In the first chapter, we're reading all about King Ahasuerus having this fabulous feast, showing off his wealth, hosting this big party in Shushan, the capital of the Persian Empire. I mean, if you think just about the party itself, lasted half a year. And, I mean, a partying that long? It's unbelievable. And of course, why was, why was he, uh, celebrating? What was this big party about? What was the king trying to achieve with this big party that he threw? What's, what's behind it? Now, in the second chapter of the Megillah is where we discover the evil plot, the conspiracy that Actually, there was another conspiracy before we get to Haman's conspiracy. There was a conspiracy, and I, I want to mention it now, although I was originally going to mention it later. The conspiracy that was brewing in the shadows of the king's courts is important for us to note and maybe get back to just now. Two high-ranking officers, Bixan and Seresh, were attempting, were plotting to assassinate the king. And who saved the day? Who was the one who got the message through and was able to foil their plot? None other than Mordechai. Mordechai saved the king by alerting him of this assassination attempt. Now, why were Bixen and Seresh and whoever else was part of their party, their team, why were they 
plotting to kill the monarch. What's their motivation? What is behind this all? And then, of course, is where we read about how they were sorted out and Haman is promoted by the king to become the prime minister. So the key to understanding all these strange and seemingly unconnected episodes and incidents, and then when we get to chapter 4 and read about Esther's strategy, I think that lies in understanding the persona. Who was this king? Who was Ahasuerus? What was his personality? What was he about? And if we understand who he was, then... I think it all makes more sense and it all comes together. So here's a part that people don't realize about who was this Ahasuerus. Actually, Ahasuerus himself was quite a paranoid fellow. And he was fearful of a rebellion. The Talmud relates that he actually was not the legitimate heir to the kingdom of Persia. It wasn't his. He was the son of a steward of the royal stables. He was a commoner, like, you know, Stalin, who rose from a peasant background by virtue of his cunning to become a dictator. And just like Stalin as a later day example, Ahasuerus outmaneuvered his rivals and ruthlessly destroyed his opponents. And that's how he winds up ascending to the throne of the Persian Empire. He seized power. Didn't inherit it. He seized the power. And that's how he got there and became the person, the king, who controlled and ruling over the kingdom. Now, of course, predictably, there was a dissident movement against Ahasuerus. That's the case of Bixen and Seresh. These were two royal officers who conspired to assassinate him. And that reveals that there was this broader dissatisfaction with his rule. There were powerful people in the royal palace who wanted to remove Ahasuerus from the throne. There were people who did not see him fit for his position. In fact, the whole lavish feast was motivated by Ahasuerus' sense of inferiority, by his insecurity. And in order to betray his rule, that's why he exhibited a grand display of his wealth, his power, in order to impress the population. Look who I am, look what I'm treating you to. He wanted to gain friends with his parties and everything he was doing. When you throw a party like that, you could persuade the people, you're a good leader, you're doing things for them, you're making them enjoy life. And that's exactly what he was doing. This was the, there was this Persian spring going on in Shushan. And that's why you had these royal officers who were trying to overthrow him. And by throwing a friend like this, well, he thought he would be able to get new friends. So that being the case, in fact, this whole party was all for that purpose itself, just to persuade them that he's a good guy. Now, the strange law proclaiming death to anyone who entered the throne room without an appointment, as we know, 
is the story where when Mordechai asks Esther initially to go in to save the king, to save the people, sorry, she says, you know, anybody who walks into the king's chamber without an invitation, if he doesn't extend his golden scepter to you, we know that their fate can be death. So the fact that she's saying this, remember who she was. She was the queen. What does that tell you about Mr. King Ahasuerus? He is a paranoid man with a very paranoid mind. Famously, Richard Nixon once said, you would also be paranoid if the whole world was out against you, out to get you. So Ahasuerus thought everyone was against him. And he became obsessed with his own security. And that's who he was. He thought everybody's there to somehow usurp his position. And it's during that lavish feast where the king ordered Queen Vashti to make an appearance in a birthday suit to display her beauty to everyone present. And when she briskly refused, the king was furious with her. How dare she disappoint? How dare she refuse his orders? But the thing is that Vashti was the actual ear. She was the daughter of King Belshazzar, who was the granddaughter well, she was the granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar, the man who destroyed the temple. She was the aristocrat. She was the royal heir to the throne, royal to her core. And Ahasuerus was afraid to kill Vashti because he thought that her presence at his side enhanced his prestige. And she was actually his best claim to the throne, that she that he was married to her. In spite of the fact that he was enraged, he wasn't ready to execute her. He thought that if he were to do that, you know, the execution of an aristocratic queen might precipitate a revolution. And he asked seven top royal advisors to suggest what should be done. Haman told the king, it's true if you kill Vashti, you might trigger a revolt. But if you allow her to survive, after publicly humiliating, insulting the king, then she'll serve as a model for all the other women of the royal, of royal blood. And that's why the Megillah says, He was worried that all the princesses of Persia would join this underground rebellion that would rise up against the king. Perhaps they would get this message. It's the woman who wear the pants. You see, a lot of, many of Ahasuerus's officers, many of the ministers were married to women of the old nobility. And if they, if they saw that the queen would not be punished for her chutzpah, for her insolence, then they too would fight their husbands. They would join the dissident movement to restore law and order the way it should be. And the possibility of a revolution, you know, always there, always around the corner. And so you can imagine the suspicion. You can imagine this conundrum, this dilemma that King Ahasuerus faced. And hearing this advice from Haman, 
one of the ministers. The way to nip that on the bud, Haman suggested, was to execute Vashti, to put his foot down and to set the record straight so that no men would jeopardize their misogynistic, chauvinistic positions. And so Ahasuerus was persuaded by this argument and he carries it out and he executes his wife. And so Haman now gained the confidence of the paranoid king. And all of a sudden, who else would be Ahasuerus's best friend other than one who can provide this kind of indispensable advice? And now, of course, he holds a more position, a more important, a more prominent position of power. Now, I, I, the way I see it is, Haman understood the mind of Ahasuerus' paranoia. And he played with that. And now we can understand why when after the removal, the the assassination, whatever you want to call it, the execution of Vashti, why there was an assassination attempt by Bixen and Seresh. Just follow the story. And Haman is promoted to position of prime minister. That's what the Megillah says. Achar advarim gidal Haman. Haman is promoted. The king was frightened. In his fear and paranoia, he, tore, he turned to the very person who had proven his loyalty to Haman, who placed this faith in him. And now Ahasuerus becomes, you know, cements this bond, this relationship between them. Which, of course, is why Haman becomes such a dangerous threat. Now, this danger expressed itself when later, while in public, Mordechai refused to bow to this egomaniac, to Haman. Haman was power hungry and expected everyone to prostrate to him. So Haman was infuriated when Mordechai refused to do so. And that's why his revenge was not only against Mordechai himself, but against all the Jews in the empire, even though so many of them did worship him. Haman played on the king's paranoia. And what does he do to get the king, to persuade the king to do away with the Jewish nation with a final solution? He casts aspersions, suspicion on the loyalty of the entire Jewish nation. He told the king, there's this one nation, the Jews, who are a, who are dispersed in the kingdom. They have different laws than the rest of the people. They don't eat, they, they, they don't eat the, the food, they don't, they, they don't observe the same holidays, they don't marry the same woman. They don't obey the king's laws. And therefore, it is not in the king's interest to keep them, to tolerate them. All of this was especially threatening to a king 
who's fretting about staying in power, who himself is paranoid about his own position, if he is informed that there's this fifth column, that there's a nation, there's a people that are different, it's a persuasive argument. Haman's depiction of the Jews, of course it's a lie, but although it's true that we're different than other people, but who says different isn't any indication of disloyalty. What's wrong with different? Each one of us, in fact, has created an original. Each one of us is distinct and different from each other. Every human being and every nation and people is different. Just look at this wonderful, beautiful rainbow nation that we all live in. What does the rainbow nation indicate? It's one of many colors. We're all uniquely, distinctly different from one another. Yet we realize that all the beautiful colors in the rainbow are all a reflection of the same one light. We're all created in the divine image. Yet Haman convinces the king with his lies. And Haman's words influence and persuade the king. So when this evil paranoid ruler is given an opportunity to assign blame on a group, then all human and moral you know, restraint is abandoned. He was only one explosive urge to destroy. That's it. And this is Haman's plot. And it's working. And he has the king convinced that it's worthwhile to eliminate this nation. Let's see where Esther kicks in and the lessons we could all learn from that. We'll be right back. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. And welcome back now to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi FM, we've been talking about the plot of Haman and the paranoid king. You see, Esther, who was married to Ahasuerus, she understood the king's mindset. And she intuited how Haman manipulated the king. She perceived, she understood that no plea to the king would actually produce results when you're dealing with a paranoid man. Now, Esther did not agree to Mordechai's plan of immediate action because she knew that once Haman succeeded in arousing the king's fear of a Jewish revolt, no rational argument could actually dissuade him from destroying his imaginary enemies. A direct appeal would only make him more hostile and suspicious. So, in astutely assessing the situation, Esther came up with an ingenious psychological strategy. She understood that the only way to save her people, the Jewish nation, would first require shattering the king's faith in his prime minister, in his second-in-command man, breaking their friendship. So when the king offered Esther anything she wanted, she responded by inviting Haman and the king to the second private banquet with her. What was the result? We know the story that Queen Esther invites the king first 
one event, just him and Haman. And that very night, again, to another event. Let's take a look at what happens. Let's remember the story of what happens next. That night, says the Megillah, that night, the king could not sleep. By the way, my advice to him would have been, like I tell all insomniacs, please come to my classes. I assure you, you'll fall asleep in minutes if you attend my shiurim. That's the only reason I try to convince everybody to come, so that you can get a nice, good, pleasant, and comfortable schluff. So... Here's your opportunity. I'm, I'm giving classes every day at Chabad House every morning. If you didn't sleep well at night, just come to the Shi'art. You'll fall right asleep, I assure you. And King Ahasuerus didn't come to my class. He couldn't sleep. So what happens? Before we discuss what happens, actually, I want to ask you, why couldn't King Ahasuerus fall asleep that night? And the Talmud actually provides some analysis of the king's insomnia. You see, Ahasuerus was disturbed by this party that Esther invited him to. It's quite strange. If Esther wanted to have a party with the king, why is Haman invited too? They attended a party that night. The king offered her anything she wants. She says, I would like the king and Haman to come to another party tomorrow night. So what's going on here? And the king is tossing and turning in bed and wondering, perhaps something's going on between his wife, Esther, and the prime minister, Haman. Maybe the two of them are plotting to kill him. In fact, provoking this kind of paranoid worrying is exactly what Esther intended. This reminds me of a story. In the early 1970s, the leader of the Soviet Union then was uh, Brezhnev. And he announced to the Poltaboro that he's making a state visit to Poland. And that in honor of the trip, he wants to bring the Polish people a momentous gift. So it's decided that Brezhnev should bring a large painting called, they wanted to call it Lenin in Poland. After all, what could be more meaningful an expression of Soviet-Polish solidarity than a portrait of Lenin, the patriarch of Soviet communism, visiting Poland? Unfortunately, Lenin actually never visited Poland. But that wasn't a problem for the communists. He could always concoct, as we know, the way the communist mind worked. All they needed was to find some creative artists to make the painting of Lenin in Poland. And time is running short. The Soviet leadership is growing desperate to find the right artist. And finally, it's decided to approach Rabinovitz. Rabinovitz was a Jewish dissident artist. And we know you detest us, they told him. We know you voiced many complaints against your country. Well, the KGB said, if you can perform this service for the motherland, you paint this portrait of Lenin in Poland, then we promise we'll make you whatever you want. We'll take care of you in exchange. Now, Rabinovitz, who had been tortured, sent into exile, into the gulag, and now the government's seeking his help. He says, all right. He agrees to make the painting of Lenin in Poland. Three weeks later, the day before the trip, Brezhnev leads a delegation 
of the KGB members into this conference room. And there stands Rabinovitz in front of a large canvas that's covered by a drop cloth. And they say, let's see the painting. Well, Rabinovitz removes the covering and everybody in the room gasps. The painting shows a room. Uh, the, the, the painting there shows a man and woman sitting romantically on a park bench. Who's the man? Someone asks Rabinowitz. Well, he says, that's Leon Trotsky, the great communist. Well, <laughs> another gasp. Who's the woman? Well, that's Krupskaya, Lenin's wife. And where is Lenin, they ask? Ah, Lenin is in Poland. That's the psychological portrait that Esther is creating in the king's mind. The private banquets, that is inflaming the king's suspicion. It's making him wonder if anyone loyal to him, even in his own circle, is there anyone loyal to him? And that's why the Talmud tells us that he ordered a servant to read to him the Sefer Azichron at the Book of Chronicles, recording the history of his reign. When the servant read about Mordechai's exposure of the assassination attempt that Bixan and Seresh were plotting against him, the king asks, what was done to honor Mordechai for this? And he discovers nothing. He was never rewarded. He was never acknowledged or recognized. Now, of course, as chief of staff, it was Haman's responsibility to reward the king's benefactor. And he never did so, which, of course, makes the king even more suspicious of Haman's loyalty. So the next morning, the king asks Haman, Haman. The king, Haman arrives. He's getting ready for, you know, he's all arrogant and seeing how everything is working according to his plan. And the king asks him, what should be done to the man who the king wishes to honor? Haman, in his mind, in his ego, thinks, who else could the king be referring to? So Haman suggests, that such a person should be given the king's robe, the royal crown placed on his head, and that he should be paraded throughout the city in one of the king's horses, escorted by one of the king's top men who would proclaim, This is what should be done to the man who the, wish, who the king wishes to honor. And the king responds, Okay, Haman, do exactly what you suggested for Mordechai. Now the most significant aspect of this of that night, was not about the king's new respect for Mordechai, but actually his loss of confidence in Haman. That was Esther's plan. And from that moment on is where we see, from that very moment, where the fortunes start turning in chapter 6 of the Megillah. And all of a sudden, things are improving for the Jews, as we'll discuss and analyze in our remaining moments. And if one will be right back, talking about Haman's stock, how it fell, and the Jewish shot of survival, all of a sudden, is up. IFM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Welcome back to Salt of Salam, Keeping Great to be with you here. And let us actually take some powerful lessons that we can learn from this story. Because we know that the very next day, after Haman is parading Mordechai throughout the town, everything is changing for him. And that evening... When Esther is sitting with Haman and the king in this party, and it's then that she points her finger at him and says and charges Haman with treason. And the king already accepted the accusation easily because the groundwork had already been laid. You see, Esther was already 
preparing this. This was all a strategy. And she explained to the king that Haman really felt concern for his bitter interests. It was Haman who he would have sold the Jews as slaves had he really cared for the king's prophets. But as she says to the king, he has no concern about you. By proposing to arm his allies with weapons to kill the Jews, maybe he was really making it easier for the revolutionary elements of the population to organize the revolution against the king. Esther argued that Haman would plunge the whole empire into civil war was plotting against the throne itself. That Haman was the most dangerous enemy of the king, not the Jews. When Ahasuerus hears this, he bolts out of the room. He's furious at Haman. And then, of course, we know Haman moves onto the couch where Esther's reclining. He's desperately pleading with the queen to save his life. And when the king walks back in, in this paranoid rage, what does he see? Haman is now trying to seduce his wife. And he says, You plan to seduce the queen in my house? He saw Haman as not only planning the revolt, but even trying to steal the queen. And that's when we see that within seconds, the king orders Haman hanged on the very gallows that Haman had prepared for hanging Mordechai. And this is exactly what Esther had planned all along. You see, this young Yiddish cup, young queen managed to outmaneuver the seasoned diplomats with his very own tricks. And this is where she saves her nation. And this is exactly, as Mordechai said to her, the purpose, the reason, the mission, why she happened to be the queen. And this is where she saves her people. So ladies and gents, as we have to wrap up and conclude today's show, what does Queen Esther teach us about leadership? I want to conclude with a few powerful lessons. Number one is we're all leaders. Esther wasn't born into this privilege. She was orphaned at a young age, as the Megillah tells us. She didn't look like she would ever do anything great. You never know. Esther had never been groomed to be the queen. She never had the training. She didn't have an impressive CV. She didn't have some show on TV where she starred. Yet Esther became a great leader. Not because of the official title that she held as Queen of Persia, but because of her courage and her conscience. Esther became a leader because she refused to be intimidated by evil power defeated by circumstances. Each one of us, every one of us could be an Esther. We have to remember that leadership begins as Esther did by taking action. When you see something wrong, we could quetch, we could complain, or we can take action. Complaining doesn't change the world. The Hayom Yom we just read two days ago, it's action. Esther takes action, she intervenes. As queen, she could have avoided any confrontation with Haman, but she didn't. It was her action, not complaining that made the difference. And each of us too, whatever action we take, we could change the world for the better. It's not just a position, it's a mindset. Esther's life shows that we can defeat tragedy by our ability to see our life, not as a sequence of misfortunes, of tragedies, of whatever circumstances we're in, but seeing the divine purpose 
of everything. Why did God put me here in my position? Just like Esther, we could change the way we feel by changing the way we think. And the best way of doing that is to ask, whatever situation might be, what does this bad situation enable me to do that I could not have done otherwise? And that could be life transforming. It enables us to see possibility where others see problems. Again, you have to be practical, but also idealistic. Esther had a very pragmatic response in the way she dealt with it, but she didn't lose her idealism. She didn't lose her faith. She says to Mordechai, fast three days and me and my people will do the same. She didn't lose her faith. Esther's leadership is an example of that synthesis of being practical and ideal. She developed a course of action, but first she fasted and prayed for success. She inspired others by her example to do the same. We too can do exactly that. And our final lesson, you know, Esther could have chosen to remain on the safe side, on the sidelines, and the injustice would have continued. But she didn't. She took action. We all have opportunities to contribute in some way, shape, or form to make a difference. And when that opportunity arises for us, let's be bold and courageous. Let's have faith. Let's pray. But let's step into the unknown. Let's do what we have to. Let's make the difference. Each and every single one of us can make a difference. So my dear friends, remember to aspire to inspire. Don't retire before you expire. Let us carpe diem seize every moment we have and make the difference that we all can make. Have a great Shabbos and a happy Purim.